and welcome to my existential crisis. My name is Madison Epley. I'm Haley. <laughs> and it is late currently. Yeah. Uh, Haley, how how are you? Let's just kick things off. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. Currently have people downstairs in my kitchen taking down walls. I love that. I wish I could be there so bad. I love renovations. I mean, I, we have the dumpster I for wish the I next 10 days. So if you find yourself in the area within the next 10 days. I won't, but um, <laughs> I wish I could be. But um, yeah, so we officially started kitchen renovations. We started taking down the cabinets and stuff last night. And yeah, we just have some friends over right now who are taking them down. We took down... Honest? Which friends? Do I know any of them? Yes. Uh, Paige and Rachel. Oh, uh, tell Paige I said hello. Oh, Rachel too, obviously. But yeah. like, I know Paige from before. So you know, How do you know Paige? I know Paige. Paige's friends no, with my No, no, I know. I'm When I at my... So, okay. For those of you who don't know, I had a birthday party <laughs> last year. And it was fun. And... So fun. Paige was... <laughs> Paige and Madison were both there. And... I also have a sister named Paige yes. for the reference. Um, Spelled the same way. And Paige and Paige used to be friends. Yes. And that's how Madison knows Paige. But Madison didn't know. I knew that Madison and Paige knew each other. I knew that. Yes. Um, Madison didn't know that I knew Paige, though. Yes. I had no idea. So, so she I walked in came to this party. there. And she, I was already, like, trash by this point. You were trash. Madison <laughs> asked great, four times, how do you know Paige? And my only response every single time was, I know Paige. I know Paige. Yeah, I know her. And I then, her. yeah, I don't. <laughs> over and over and over. Like, you were asking, like, you thought I was asking if you knew Paige. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know Paige. Yeah, I, know her. I don't know. Yeah. I was just, I was <laughs> you so. give me an answer. I still don't remember how you know Paige. I, I met her. Know. I met her through my boyfriend, through Christian. Did you? Yeah. I, you know, I still don't think I knew that to this day. Yeah, so basically... <laughs> I don't like, think I got an answer that night. No. Christian and Rachel's ex-boyfriend were friends, and Rachel was friends with Paige, and they all started hanging out as, like, a unit. Oh. So then when ex-boyfriend was kicked to the curb, and I was infiltrated in, I infiltrated the group, and that's how I know Paige. Gotcha. And now Paige is now a, I know. a dear friend. And now she's renovating your kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> While you recorded me. Full circle. Full circle, indeed. Um, we just got back from New York on Sunday. <gasps> oh, yes. You saw Phantom. I did. I did, indeed. It was... So I'm historically on the record as not being a fan of Phantom. I know. It and is... Haley, I... <laughs> This is one of my biggest contentions with you, yeah, and I have trying to come to terms with it yeah, all these years later. It's one of Christian's biggest contentions uh, with me as well. Yeah, um, I understand that wholeheartedly. <laughs> I have the music box. I, I have know you like, do. <laughs> but I will say, so the first time I saw Phantom was with Madison, and, and the fr- it was the first time I saw Phantom yeah, too. I was more. I cried. Obviously, I bawled. I was more excited to watch her watch it than I was to actually watch it. But it's weird oh. because I. <laughs> My so my relationship with Phantom, we're just gonna get into it real quick. It's a roller coaster. <laughs> when I was in middle school, I loved it. I watched the, really, uh, yeah. I watched the 25th anniversary Royal Albert Hall edition at Sierra least once Vagas. a week. Ugh, I loved yes. it. 
I when I did vocal lessons with our with our chorus teacher in middle school, I did think of me. Really? Yeah. I wanted to I work on my soprano. That. Well, you and I didn't really Also, you doing think of me. I love you, Guff Puff, but Well, I I went Can in You hit those notes? Yes, actually I did. No disrespect, no, Jenny. That's a I genuine hit, question. I hit them. I hit the, I don't know. They don't sound good, but I can hit them. Does that count? If I can still It's like me and my alto. Like I can hit the low notes, but it doesn't sound yeah, good. Like it, it doesn't sound like a foghorn. Like I don't know. Like I the whole reason I chose Think of Me is because of those high notes and I wanted to work on my head voice when I went into I it. I admire but, that. Yeah. That didn't last very long. Um <laughs> Yeah, what I don't... Happened? Why did you end up hating Phantom? I don't know. What made you a hater? I don't know what happened. I just... Well, undo it. Well, I'm Whatever. getting there. I'm getting there, Madison. I don't know what happened. What can I do? But what can I do to make you get there faster? I don't know what happened. Something along the way. And then I was just like, man, I don't really care for it. And then I still didn't care for it after Madison and I saw it. I still stood by that yeah. I was like... Like, you would have thought I was taking Haley to see, like cats another intro uh, yeah <laughs> like cats you would have thought i was dragging not just the mu- like the movie the movie cats yeah. you would have thought i was dragging her to see that i don't was i that bad about it i thought i was a pretty good sport Haley, you were okay you were a good sport you feigned a good sport really well but you could see like the grimace in you the yeah. entire time and after because i was like i really want to like see them at the door afterwards i really want him to get him signed in my program and you're like i'll do it for you yeah. <laughs> like, you're, you were you were a good sport you just like i could see the grimace that your whole body was making yeah. through your good sportedness i mean i was not a good sport the last time not this past time but the time before christian and i went and he was like phantoms playing and i said no i was like oh. no I'm going to rub that in Christian's face. Well, she went to go see it with me, but she wouldn't go see it with Well, it wasn't time. that I wouldn't go. Like, I was like, that was the last thing I saw. Because we went right before, um, in November of 2019 was when we saw Phantom. <gasps> That's so right. That was right the, before COVID. Yeah, that, that was, was the, the last, last thing, thing we saw. Yeah. So I was like, Phantom was Shit. already the last show I saw before COVID. I, no, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I can't. But. I have come I have come to a to an impasse here cuz we saw it like the music's fantastic. The music for Phantom is is beautiful and it's been an earworm since we saw it on Friday. <gasps> Yay! And we watched that makes me so happy. We watched the movie on Monday. I'm sorry. This is a hot take. I think the movie is trash. Ooh, don't tell uh, Christian that. Don't say that. Okay, him. here's here's my thing. I used to love the movie when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, you, so how I was introduced to Phantom and why it's my favorite is because my mom would play the cassettes of the original Broadway soundtrack in the car. And I didn't know the story yet. I only knew the music. So I would like try to guess the story and she, or she would like tell me about it as I listened to it. And so I fell in love with the music first. Then I saw the movie and it kind of like helped to put the pieces together and I fell in love with the movie. I was obsessed with it. Now that I'm older and I know better, I love Emmy Rossum, but she is trash at Christine. Like, okay, I won't say I don't like the movie. I like the movie. I really like Emmy Rossum as Christine for the looks of it, but her soprano isn't mature enough. She's not mature enough vocally to sing it. Yeah, it's very weak. Yes. Her 
when you put it side by side Patrick Wilson is the shining star of that movie and I will stand by Patrick Wilson every day I love him so much I did not know the man could sing I was shooketh I was like he was in Brigadoon with Kelly O'Hara I I forgot about that nobody cares about this shit I swear but he was like on I don't think it was on Broadway but it was like a national tour um, the Kennedy Kennedy Center Center. Yeah. yeah the Kennedy Center production of Brigadoon he was what's the guy's name I remember sharing... Tommy! He was Tommy. Tommy Tommy Ross. That's the only reason I remember anything about that. For those of you who don't know, we did Brigadoon when we were in high school. That was... We did Tommy... Oh, Tommy. We did Brigadoon. Yes. And I was... We were both in the ensemble. Yeah. I was the ensemble. But then I also had this other character. Her name was... Jane Ashton. I was going to say, her name was Jane something. Jane Ashton and she was Tommy's fiance and she only came in at the end and she talked like this and you get to throw they were at a bar a and she's like Tommy oh no? I love you what threw a drink in his face or no or did you just want to I think I did I can't remember I think I threw a drink in his face but there was nothing in the drink mm. I think I or did I I don't think I did I don't maybe I just wanted to I think you just wanted I, I think you're remember. right I think you're right but anyway back circling back to what started this conversation <laughs> in the first place um but i'm i'm honestly i'm coming around on phantom a little bit i'm coming around on the music maybe i was just because that the day we went to new york was a shit show from the start like it was yeah, just huh i said you said that yeah what no the day you, you and said- i went Oh, that we went. Oh, I thought you meant that you and Christian went. Oh, yeah. The day we went was a shit show. Like, it was very unplanned. It was very spontaneous. It was was spontaneous, which, like, isn't usually the problem that I have with New York trips. It's It was the fact that it was, like, we got on this bus at, like, 5 in the morning, and we waited, what, like, a half an hour for some guy who didn't even end up coming. So that's... Oh, I forgot about that. So that put us behind. Oh, that pissed me off. That put us behind, and then we had discussed what shows we were willing to see and what we wanted to see, and Phantom was at the bottom of my list, but literally, we got up to the tickets booth, and every other show... Everything. Like, there were shows that we we both had come to, like, all right, these are, like, the top three shows that we want to see, and I think it was, like, Beetlejuice, Mean Girls, and Waitress. Yeah. Were the three. Something like that. And every single one of them was sold out. And there was this huge And literally line. everything and on the we really don't want to see list was still available. Oh, yeah. That was it. Those were the only things available. Yeah. I mean, Madison wanted to see Phantom. And I had told her I would see it for her. And so she was like, what about Phantom of the Opera? And the lady was like, yeah, we have that. We have that. And she was like, okay, just give us two tickets to that. And I was like, Okay. This is happening. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm sorry. It's fine. I'm not like mad about it. I'm. I'm. Is what it is. That's. I still had a great day you, with. I you, had though. a great day with you too. I feel like I've been talking for too long. Madison, how was your? How, how have you been? Uh, you know, if you would have asked me that question three hours ago, I would have had a completely different answer for you. So like, whenever I I've been so excited about recording with you today. I, I was so excited yesterday. All day at work, I had like butterflies on my stomach. I get home and I. I get home and I see this green sludge in the kitchen sink. Mm. And I was like, huh, that's bizarre. Maybe David just didn't like rinse the sink out really well before bed, but that's not quite like him. So I rinse it out. I see that it's not quite going down the drain right. And like I wash, I wash everything out and like it's not going down the drain. And so we have a garbage disposal now. Mm-hmm. 
I have never had a garbage disposal in my entire life. And anytime I have known someone with a garbage disposal, it has been nothing but chaos and mayhem. David's family is the only people I have known with a garbage disposal where it hasn't gone routinely badly wrong. So David's like, oh, I know what we can put down the garbage disposal, all this and that. I know how to run it. And I'm like, okay, I forget that it's there. I don't like to use it because I don't know enough about it. So I'm like, you, you can, if you want to use it, you do that. I'm not saying David didn't put the wrong things down. I think he put too much too fast down and there was all, okay. I, regardless, it's clogged Mm. and it's backed up Mm. and I thought I had fixed it. And so I was telling him on our walk tonight, like, hey, this happened. And he didn't believe me. And I was getting so upset because I was like, "This, I'm not making this up. There was green sludge. It was gurgling back up like it didn't go down right. It was like edamame. Like, it's, this is not right. So he's like, okay, I'm just like having a really hard time understanding what you're saying. And I'm like, I promise it happened. He's like, well, next time you're just going to have to record it so I can see it. I'm like, okay, I will. So I get home. I go to our guest bathroom and I see like sludgy foam in the sink. Mm. And I was like, David. So he comes in and I show him what I see. I spent half an hour trying to plunge the sink. So our guest bathroom sink and the kitchen sink are like back to back. So the plumbing is connected. Mm-hmm. So Everything that was stuck in the garbage disposal is now in my guest bathroom sink. And we had to call the emergency maintenance because it was technically emergency maintenance request. And he said that there are 20 gallons of water in the pipes that have to drain out before he can do anything about it. But like, I, I just, it's a mess. So like I had to deal with so many of my least favorite things today. I put baking soda and vinegar down the drains to try to flush them out before I plunge and everything. And right. it seemed like it was working at first. And then once I plunged it, all this shit came. It was a whole mess. This is so gross. Oh, it was disgusting. So I hate vinegar for anyone who doesn't know. I despise, I loathe vinegar. Anything that has to do with vinegar, I despise it. So that's already one thing I don't like. Mm-hmm. Second thing is like dirty dishwater with like food particles and i putting my hands in this dirty dishwater that's two things third thing is i'm hungry and that doesn't seem to be major but i haven't eaten all day third thing sorry that's fourth thing fourth thing i had to call the guy for maintenance and again doesn't seem like a big thing i get anxious on the phone i get anxious asking for help i just get really anxious having to call people so that was not making me feel good it was just like one after the next like things are just going wrong and but it's fine it's still clogged but they're coming tomorrow to actually just rip apart the plumbing because he said it's old plumbing and he just wants to put new plumbing in there so yeah that was my night sorry incredible yeah that literally just happened in the last two hours but if you had asked me before it would have been fine (laughs) nothing would have been wrong i'm sorry buddy it's fine everything's great it's not like i'm paying for it i just rent the place so that's the one nice thing I'm just rambling and complaining now, but that's all. Sounds like an eventful time. Three hours. Yeah. Yeah. 
is great. And I burned my grilled cheese. Oh no. Because I was trying to plumb while I was trying to make a grilled cheese. It's okay. I'm sorry. Oh, one quick thing I want to mention. I do have a fact check from last episode. So uh, Owen and Sam, the one who's requested, Owen requested this week's topic. Um, Sam is his wife. She's, um, she works in a vet's office, but (laughs) she said human poison control is free. So yes, if you think you've been poisoned, please call poison control. Animals are not. What if someone, what if we had that power that someone had been like, wow, you know, I can't ever call poison control again because Haley and I I don't want to be liable. I don't want to be liable for any wrongdoing. Oh, she also said they won't verify if it's a mushroom because it's really hard to obviously identify what kind of mushroom it is over the phone. So I, she said specifically for animals, but I'm sure that also applies to humans as well. So if you think you're poisoned by a mushroom or your dog is poisoned by a mushroom, just go to the ER or vet. Take your, take care of your pets, people. We do have a little bit of a twist today. Um, I'm going to say it was planned, even though it definitely wasn't. My story is just egregiously long. Yeah. And Haley has been busy with renovations. Renovations, so, New York, a million. I just... All of those things. So many things. And that's a-okay. Um, so not planned. Just going to say it's planned. Uh, I... I'm the only one who has a story today. But it's very long, so I am just going to get into it. Like I said, Owen Small is the one who requested this, and it is one of the largest, just gross miscarriages of justice in British history that no one has ever heard about. But, like, who's surprised? Because, like, it's the British. Uh, There is a movie called In the Name of the Father, which was based on these events, and before I even like fully explain what happens, I have to go into some of the history or else it doesn't make sense, at least for us ignorant Americans. Haley, do you know anything about like Irish history? Not at really, all. No. Okay. I didn't either before I dove into this. I knew absolutely nothing about Ireland. I knew it was a country and that was about it. Uh, some of my story. Okay. Uh, sorry. I'm so excited about this topic. If you could not tell, I'm so excited to tell you about this because it is just, I want you to be as mad as I am about it. Uh, this is probably the most research that I have done on topic so far. I went deep into this topic just to like fully understand what I was reading and to fully understand the whole context. Cause that's really what makes it. So some of my sources are, um, the Red-Handed Podcast, episode 224. They did a really, really great episode on this. Uh, definitely give that a check out if you're interested in more information. The History Channel, the Los Angeles Times, Irish Central, BBC News, the Irish News, the Victorian University of Wellington, the Canary, the Justice Gap, and Irish Central, which I already said. It's fine. Uh, so... This is the story of the Guilford pub bombings and a quick history lesson to go with it. On October 5th, 1974, two bombs were detonated at two pubs in Guilford, Surrey, England. 
The pubs were targeted because they were a popular destination for British army personnel who were stationed nearby. In these bombings, four soldiers and one civilian were killed and 65 people were injured, 30 of those retaining serious injuries. The attack was the first in a year-long campaign by an active service unit in the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. What did I just say? So the IRA was an Irish Republican paramilitary organization that sought to end British rule in Northern Ireland. They wanted to facilitate Irish reunification and bring about an independent socialist republic encompassing all of Ireland. And the IRA was most active during the Troubles. So I'm going to break all of that down because I had no idea what any of that meant before diving into this. So first things first, Republican in this instance is not equivalent to the American political Republicans. This is not at all what we're talking about. Irish Republicans sought for the unification and independence of Ireland, which I had no idea wasn't already a thing. So that's how ignorant I am. So I'm telling you in case, so you don't have to admit that you're ignorant or that you just don't know because I didn't know either because they don't teach you this in our schools in America. Irish Republicans, they thought any British rule in Ireland was not legitimate because they basically wanted Britain to just butt the hell out and just like leave them alone, which like fair. Um, What is a paramilitary organization? Basically not a legit military, but they acted like one. So the IRA, they weren't, it wasn't a military that Ireland like gave to them to fight it wasn't like our u.s army the ira was like basically civilians who were acting as a military group and fighting for their country without being a legitimate one so they weren't completely legal but they were fighting for their country does that make sense yes okay if you have questions along the way please let me know because this was a lot for me to wrap my head around and i'm sure if you have questions other people do too so i'm gonna do I also want to mention I'm doing my best as an ignorant American to relay all of this history to you in the easiest way I know possible. So still backing up, what were the troubles? Why did this bombing happen? And what was the historical significance of it? Like, why do we care about this bombing? Why, why does it matter? So the troubles were a conflict that lasted for about 30 years from the late 1960s to 2003. And in very, very, very brief terms, The conflict was situated on they wanted democratic voting in Northern Ireland and they wanted to reunite Ireland as a whole because Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland are separate. They are not unified, even to this day. It was a time of huge violence. It was basically a war zone in the 1970s, which is crazy to me because I have never heard about this before in my life. And I obviously know that like Scots and British and Irish and British have a problem, but I had no idea why. So it was really cool to see some of that light shed on it. Basically, Britain just likes to fuck things up and take land that doesn't belong to them and try to what Britain does, you know. You know, makes sense. So in the 1970s, like I said, it was a war zone. There were 10, that, sorry, there were 10,000 shootings per year. I wanted to make sure I read that right. And I did. 10,000 shootings per year and bombings on top of that. I think that one of the 
articles I read, that was like 40 shootings per day. That's That's nuts. Yes, big trouble. The troubles was like a nice word for what was going on in Ireland at this time. So rewinding a little bit more, like, it's like, I bet you wonder how we got here. Like one of those moments. So rewinding majorly in history, it all started in basically the 1100s, if you can imagine that's a time. And long story short, for centuries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, England just kept fucking with the Irish, trying to claim their land from their rightful clan owners and abolish Catholicism for Protestantism. So it was both about religion and land. And it's all going to tie together in modern history, too, which is why I'm bringing it up. So back and forth, it went throughout history, English taking Irish land from them, Irish reclaiming it back, English taking it back from them again, just back and forth over and over and over again. Basically, the British were just doing what they did best and just kept fucking with people and taking things that didn't belong to them. What's new? Like I said, in the 1970s, there is so much footage about it, like how bad it was in Ireland at this time and again like if you just just like look up some images of it it is it'll come up it's shocking like this was all over the news at the time obviously I wasn't born but I had no idea this was even happening so or this that this had happened it's crazy to me that I didn't know about any of this okay so all of this is super hush hush like we I get that we haven't heard about it because we're in America, but they don't even teach this in British schools, which again, like it's Britain, so it makes sense. But like, it's just crazy to me. I'm rambling now, but like, it's just, I can't believe how under the rug it is. Like currently right now in Britain, there are children who don't know about this. There are people our age that don't know about this and it was in their country. It's pretty crazy. So Being Irish in Britain was hard. Um, If you think about how like during our Great Depression, there'd be people lining up for work and like people, some people would get selected, other people would be sent home. It was like that a lot in the 1970s, people looking for work, except the Irish were never chosen. They were always sent home, always rejected. Um, There was even a sign, um, you might have seen it before, it was no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And that was put on a bed and breakfast, um, basically shunning those people. And it was kind of argued whether or not this sign was real. And I'm not an expert. I would say it's real. Um, But regardless of whether or not that actually was a fact, that that actually was a sign put up in a place, that was absolutely how people felt at the time. Nina, N-I-N-A, was also on a lot of job listings, which meant no Irish need apply. Irish were being very heavily discriminated against. And actually, the protests that they started having about this were very much inspired by our civil rights protests that were happening in America. Okay, so the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, had been alive since the early 1900s with their same goal to try to reclaim Ireland from Britain. In 1921, Ireland was split into Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and Southern Ireland, which is a free independent state free from English rule. Are you following me so far? Okay, I just want to make sure. I know this is a lot of information coming at you very quickly. So Northern Ireland owned by the UK. 
Southern Ireland, that is free. Okay. Also worth mentioning, Northern Ireland, which is where the UK is, that's Protestant. Because if you remember, they were trying to abolish Catholicism, which is what they ended up doing. Protestant ended up taking over. The Republic of Ireland, Southern Ireland, is predominantly Catholic. In the 1960s, still much discrimination against Irish people and Catholic people. Um, for example, a huge area of contention was that plural voting was still allowed in Northern Ireland. And this meant that people and their spouses who paid local taxes by either renting or owning property could vote. And company owners had an extra vote. Basically, people who, if you didn't pay taxes, you didn't get to vote. So, like, I do you pay taxes with Christian right now? Because you're not technically renting, you own the property. Do you split those with him, or is it all in his um, name? I'm honestly not sure. I know we split bills. I would assume that that's one of the bills that him and I split between the two of us. I would th- so I would think technically you might technically split it between the two of you but I think because you're not married and you don't technically co-own the house with him you could not vote okay if you were living at home with your parents and your dad paid the the property taxes even if you were of legal age you could not vote so there's that that was not not cool. People did not like that. This also meant that non-taxpayers didn't have a role in local government elections. Um, and because in Northern Ireland, everything was pretty much controlled by Protestants, this meant that Catholics and Irish people didn't get a say. They didn't get a vote, um, which is not okay. Obviously, everyone wants to be heard. So from this gerrymandering and the property owning requirements, obviously, like things are not going well. It's they're already being discriminated against with jobs and taxes, and it's kind of reaching ahead and everyone's really frustrated. So the official troubles started after the Catholics began to peacefully protest in a civil rights campaign, again, inspired by the U.S. civil rights protests. They wanted everyone to have a right to vote, but they were met with violence and force from the Protestant police force. Northern Ireland saw this this footage of the police abusing these protesters. They were obviously horrified. Um, This ended in riots because people were so upset about the way people were being treated when they were just trying to protest peacefully. And British soldiers ended up being deployed in Northern Ireland to calm the situation down. All this time, throughout all these years, the IRA's goal was to defend Catholics from Protestant attack. You with me so far? Yes. Okay. So now that we have that history part down, and that is the hardest part of this whole story, now I can just tell it. Now that we know, like, the context, now that we know how bad it is, this discrimination happening in Britain, I can go back. So, these Guilford bombings happened only five days before the UK general election. The IRA argued that because they were military pubs that were attacked, they weren't civilian targets. But before, they were just attacking barracks, and now it was very clearly civilian territory. The IRA, they used to give warning before they would attack. But now the fact that there could be an attack anywhere kind of left people, especially the British, feeling 
shaken and uneasy. They didn't know like, is this pub going to be next? Is this next place going to be next? Because it's adjacent to a British military office, whatever. So all of the parties in the UK general election, they wanted to respond very quickly to what was happening. They wanted to have an answer. They wanted to find the people who did it, get this squashed as quickly as possible to make it seem like they had everything under control. So they acted so quickly that they passed the Prevention of Terrorism Acts in November of 1974. And if you remember the bombings happened in October. So within a month, this was passed, which is probably the fastest any government has acted ever on anything because nothing happens that fast, as we all know. And part of this Prevention of Terrorism Act meant that police who just suspected people of terrorism, they didn't have to have proof. They didn't have to have anything concrete. They could just suspect you of terrorism. They could hold you for eight days without charging you. That meant, Haley, if I know a police, if I'm a police officer and I think, I just think, I have a suspicion that maybe you're, do something, you're doing something illegal, I can hold you in police captivity for eight days and never actually charge you with anything. Before this, police could only hold you for 24 hours or they'd have to charge you with something. That's how it is here too. They can't right. hold you forever. Huh. So police interviewed all of the survivors from all the bombings and somehow they had a picture of this couple who was not among the survivors. Okay. Now I don't know how they got this picture because it's not like they're in the 70s. It's not like you have an iPhone and you're just taking a picture. Like you would have had to have a picture taken just it ha like everything right. has to align. The stars have to align for you to get this picture of this particular couple in the background. And you have to get it developed and it has to turn out. Like it's not, anyway. So they had this picture of this couple. Witnesses claimed they saw them getting drinks earlier and then left shortly thereafter, AKA they weren't there when the bomb exploded. And witnesses also claimed they had never seen them before, which in Surrey, in a military pub, was very unusual. So it was very quickly decided by the police that this couple must have been the one who set the bomb and the witnesses even overheard them and they heard that they were Irish. So police are like, these are our guys. They're part of the IRA. We've got them. We just got to find who these people are. So if you thought being Irish in England was bad before the bombings, after the bombings, it got much much worse. So again, for more context, the IRA attacked England 40 times in one year using guerrilla warfare. And for these bombings, 46 arrests were made. One of the arrests being a man named Paul Hill. And he is the first of the Guilford Four who I am now going to get into. So Paul Hill it's not quite clear how they tried to connect him with the bombings, but he was already wanted for the killing of a British officer. So they knew who he was. They knew of him. Fun fact, he was later acquitted of that killing of a British officer. But, uh, you know, we'll get there later. So Paul Hill was arrested and he was violently interrogated using psychological and physical abuse and torture. 
And under duress, eventually he signed a confession claiming his three friends, Jerry Conlon, Patty Armstrong, and Carol Richardson were co-conspirators to the bombing with him, with Conlon's aunt being the bomb maker. Just to emphasize how bad the psychological abuse and the torture was, later a police witness would claim that a fellow officer pointed an unloaded gun at Paul and pulled the trigger during the interrogation. He also later claimed, Paul did, we insisted that we had made the admissions only after being brutalized, ill-treated, and threatened, and that they consisted of a mixture of innocent background information, pure invention, and details of the Gilbert bombings supplied by the police themselves. So these confessions were fabricated to every extent. The police were feeding them lines. They were the ones basically writing the confessions. They had all the details. They were lying to them all this time. So Paul gives these three names. He says it's Jerry, Patty, and Carol along with him. They were the ones who planted the bomb. Jerry was arrested, and at first he didn't think too seriously about it. He was just like, ah, they're arresting another Irish guy. Like, of course they are. Like, he saw this all the time on the news, so he didn't really think much about it. He's just like, okay, I'm being arrested. They're going to let me go once they figure out I'm nothing to do with anything. He had no idea what the fuck the officers were talking about when they were trying to interrogate him. And he even had an alibi. He said that he was dropping some acid with a homeless man, but he just couldn't remember this man's name. But he, he, he knew the guy. He could show him where he was. He just couldn't remember his name. He was held and manipulated for eight days, being abused verbally and physically and mentally, just like Paul was, by officers trying to get a confession out of him. He and his other quote-unquote co-conspirators were stripped naked, subjected to strip searches, sleep, they were sleep-deprived, uh, deprived of food, they were constantly exposed to light and noise as a way to try to bring them down even more. They suffered severe verbal abuse, um, long enforced periods of standing, lengthy physical abuse and beatings, just constantly being beaten, solitary confinement, and just other gross misconduct, such as the police urinating in their food. So just like Beyond imagination, what they're doing to these people who didn't do anything. And they're getting them to sign these confessions. Patty and Carol, they were also arrested and they both had lice, which might not seem like anything too crazy, but this would automatically roll them out of being an active service unit for the IRA. There's no way the IRA with their standards would take two people who were living in such a way that they had lice. And it was tough times, but like they were living, I don't want to say in squalor, but like they were not living to the standards an officer in a military unit would. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it didn't matter. Didn't matter to the police. They didn't care. Um, also during their arrest, Patty and Carol had been tripping the fuck out on barbiturates and a combination of uppers and downers. And they had already been awake for three days because of their drug binge. So when the police arrested them, they were already sleep deprived. They already were running on drug withdrawal. 
when the police arrested them. And they were subjected to the very same torture as Jerry and Paul. Patty was told that the police would cut off his arms and legs to leave him just like those he maimed in the bombings. They just kept asking over and over who Auntie Annie was, the people that, that they made up that made the bombs in the bomb factory. And they kept telling Patty that everyone and his girlfriend had already confessed. So like he should just confess too. Patty gave in after one day, just agreeing to everything the police said and just leading him on the entire way. But like, I feel bad saying just one day because if you're already three days in, no sleep, and they're doing all this to you, like you just want it to yeah. stop. Like you're coming down off hard drugs. Like you don't know what's happening. Carol was under such severe duress from this interrogation that she needed to be seen by the police surgeon and had recollection difficulties because she was given 20 capsules of sedative medication on the day of her arrest. So again, coming down from drug withdrawal, she is being under this severe abuse and then she's being sedated with this, these pills on top of right. all of it. It's not good. Not good at all. So Carol and Patty admitted to being the couple in the photograph and planting the bomb in a handbag under the table with a 40-minute timer. Just that came out of thin air. The couple in the picture was depicted as a man in his 40s. And Patty was 20. And Carol was 17. She was a minor. So there is no, no way that this could have been them, and the police just didn't give a shit. They just wanted someone to pin it on. And actually, one of the officers apparently said to Patty, he quoted, we know you didn't do it, but we're going to do you anyway. We need bodies. Which is just awful. So like, they, the British just want to seem tough. They want to have someone to make an example of. They want to be able to show people that they have things under control. And I also want to mention all of these people are British citizens. They just have Irish descent. So we're in England at this point. As a reminder, every single one of these people just sounds Irish. They just have family who are Irish, but they are British citizens. And Carol was actually English born. She was not Irish at all. She was just dating Patty, who was Irish. That is how much they hated the Irish. That is how much they wanted to have it out for this group of people. And actually, these were all British citizens who fled Ireland to London in order to escape the troubles. So like they had already, they, they thought they'd be safe in London because they wanted to get away from the war that was happening in their home country. Huh. Okay. Now, the Maguire Seven. Annie Maguire, who was Jerry Conlon's aunt, she had her home stormed and seven people in her family were arrested, including her 17 and 14-year-old sons, her husband, her brother, a family friend, and Jerry's dad, Giuseppe, who had only been there in London from Ireland. The only reason he was there that day when he was arrested was because his son was in jail and he was trying to arrange counsel for him to get him out. 
Had he stayed in Ireland, he never would have been arrested, but he was there to help his son, which is just so heartbreaking to me. So at this point, I'm thinking, like, why do they have to have Annie and this whole family involved? Like, why can you just not pin it on these four people? Why do you have to have any of them involved at all? And it's because the police needed this supposed bomb factory in Annie's house in order to make sense of the tale that they were creating for the Guilford Four. None of the Guilford Four lived in a place where you could make bombs. Either the doors didn't lock or it was like a hostel and people were coming in and out constantly. Annie just had a big enough house and really the biggest, the only connection, I will say, the only connection between her and the Guilford Four was that she was related to Jerry and that was it. So in their trial, the McGuire Seven, the prosecutor said Annie was a sleeper agent who had been silent for 20 years and just happened to be activated when Jerry came over, her nephew. They had conflicting information between all of the confections, just like the Guilford Four did as well, but all of these were brushed over, despite, again, most of them having a solid confirmed alibi. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that everybody had alibis. Nobody cared that the Guilford Four and the McGuire Seven, they both, all of their confessions, none of them matched. None of them lined up. They were all riddled with facts that weren't true and things that just didn't make any kind of sense when put together. But nobody cared. They just brushed it under the rug. (sighs) So, sorry, I'm getting so worked up. Are you following everything so far? Yeah. Okay. So, during the trial and what happened after, the judge said to the jury, I wouldn't have made a false confession, but they may be different than me. Basically saying that it was impossible is what he implies to the jury, that it is impossible to have a false confession. These people were spit on and beaten and tortured. After so many days of that, I mean, I might give in. I'm not. I don't have the strongest constitution. I would like to say I do, but like... I don't know what I would do in that situation, but he basically told the jury it was impossible. He also told the jury, the judge, he told the jury that it was their duty to find them guilty. He said there was no way they could have had such detailed confessions if they really were innocent, even though the details of the confessions were completely different from each other. And the jury did their duty. Paul was given the longest sentence in modern English history, life with no chance of parole until great age or infirmary, which was the first time life actually meant life. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. He was given life in prison. Carol, a minor, was sentenced to 30 years in prison. The judge actually said he wished the Guilford Four would have been tried for treason so they'd be eligible for the death sentence. Fucked. Even when they knew. Even when they knew. And Haley, I will go into more detail a couple more pages down into how much they knew. How much they blatantly knew this was not right. 
So this same judge presided over the Maguire 7 case. Annie was painted out to be this bomb master, this master bomb maker, when in reality, she could barely see well enough to wire a plug, let alone handle ballistics. The police presented forensic evidence of nitroglycerin on gloves that were found in the family's home, which apparently proved that they made the bombs. Annie's children, who were 17 and 14 at the time, remember I said they were also arrested, Mm -hmm. They were sentenced to five years and four years, respectively, and made to serve in an adult prison. Imagine at 14 years old, you're in an adult prison with grown men for a terrorism charge. Not good. Not good. That's that's fucked up. It's fucked. This whole thing is fucked. Sorry. So... All of these people are in jail now. All of them are sentenced. All of them are innocent. We know this. In come the Balcom Street gang. These were the people who were actually responsible for the bombings. A man from the Balcom Street gang was arrested, and he refused to plea at his trial because it didn't include the other pub bombings. And he asked his defense not to defend his innocence, but to prove the innocence of the Guilford Four. And again, just rewinding, just because these people were arrested, the bombings didn't stop. They kept happening. I think I said there were 40 bombings over the span of one year. This was all while these people were in custody. So beyond all of the evidence that they had, there was no logical way they could still be behind these bombings because they were in police custody. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. No. And all of the other bombings that were happening were the exact same method. Everything was the exact same as these Guilford pub bombings. So it just didn't make sense for it to be anybody else. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. (sighs) Okay. The police, again, they knew that they didn't have the right guys because the bombings kept happening, but they just wanted to get someone. They wanted to get anyone and show that they were tough and had things under control. The statement from the Balcom Street Gang wasn't passed on to the Guilford Four's defense team. The gang gave detailed and complete statements as to how they carried out the Guilford bombings. And at this point, it's been two years that jerry and paul and carol and patty have been in jail so finally jerry got wind of this he heard their confessions and after two years he's like this is it i'm gonna be released they have they're confessing to the crime i am in jail for i'm gonna be released soon right you'd think nope you'd think nope not at all 13 more years go by before they're released so again these people are all in prison giuseppe jerry's dad he was already not doing well before he was arrested and he tragically died in prison jerry was allowed to see him on his deathbed and giuseppe's final wish was for jerry to prove their innocence and he did The four tried over and over to appeal despite confessions from the Balcom gang 
and their rock solid case showing all of their alibis, all of their evidence, nothing. The police didn't just have it wrong. They knowingly sent four innocent people to prison for life, too embarrassed to appeal the decision. Luckily, this bomb-ass lawyer, her name is Jareth Pierce, she worked for years pro bono to get them acquitted. There's other lawyers in there as well, but she is like the bomb-ass one. She's the top. You'll see her. She, yes, she is in the movie. I, I think she said that she didn't watch the movie. She didn't like her part in it because they emphasized too much on her, not the other lawyers. But like for all intents and purposes, she's bomb-ass woman. Police crimes and gross misconduct. This is where we find out just how much the police knew and just how much they didn't give a shit and just did this anyway. Patty's statement had been amended after his interrogation by police, and it was sloppy at best. Things had just been crossed out, handwritten in, just as lazy and as scummy as manipulating and fixing a confession could be. The homeless man, Jerry said that he did acid with, he just couldn't remember his name. Remember that guy? Yeah. He did exist. And the police even knew his name and even interviewed him. And he corroborated Jerry's alibi. And they hid this from the defense. They even put a note on it and said, do not show defense. You can't see it, but my jaw dropped. I heard your jaw drop. Like, that blatant. That's... It makes me so mad. That's insane. Oh, my God. Yes. Just blatant fuckery. That should be the title of this episode. Just fucking blatant fuckery. This is actually shown in the movie, this folder that said, do not show defense. And people were like, that can't be true. That's just dramatized. No, that is one thing that is absolutely accurate. That did happen. That is not made up. Insane. Fucked. Also... The positive nitroglycerin tests that they used to convict Annie and her whole family for having a bomb factory in their house, it was conducted by an 18-year-old trainee and was fundamentally flawed to begin with. And they knew about this. They just kept rejecting the new evidence, every appeal, without explanation. In September 2016, so more recent to us, we're jumping ahead here a little, the court appeal ruled that there was evidence that police knew in advance that the IRA were planning the Birmingham bombings. So I'm going to say that again. In 2016, can't do math, 40 some years after this happened, it was revealed that there was evidence the police knew in advance the IRA was planning this bombing. So they knew this bombing was going to happen they had evidence it was being planned, and they knew they had the wrong guys. And they just were more worried Didn't about their reputation. And- yep. And it gets even worse, if you can think about it. Uh, acquittals and aftermath. Lord Denning, I hate to give him the title Lord because he's a fucking scumwad. He's an English lawyer and judge, or at least he was. He died in 1999 said that the British justice was in ruins. And this is a quote. Wrongfully convicted prisoners should stay in jail 
rather than be freed and risk a loss of public confidence in the law. No. And he, mm -hmm, that is a direct quote. And he argued that even if they are IRA adjacent, meaning basically if they were Irish, they should be convicted for their crimes. For what? What? For the IRA's crimes? For being Irish. For being Irish. Oh my God. Not a single member of the British police were convicted for their crimes. They were investigated, but they were all acquitted. All of them. The perjury, concealing of documents, fraud. This is all a crime. This is not legal to do. They were all acquitted. Got off scot-free. In 1984, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act was passed. It was passed based on the coerced confessions from the Guilford Four, but it still didn't release the innocent people. They wouldn't get released until five years later, but they were making this act in direct response from the coerced confessions of these people. They were just leaving them locked in jail. Didn't care. Unlike the U.S., now in the U.K., based on this Police and Criminal Evidence Act, the police can't lie to you during a confession. You know how in the U.S. and other countries, police can be like, you can just tell us or we know that you were there. Things like that. Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore in the U.K. because of this. And that's a great, I, I think that's a fantastic thing. Now you can't even show a false photo lineup like you can in the U.S., and you can't say that they saw you if they didn't or that you were seen if they didn't. They can't say any of that. So again, they're passing acts in Parliament from these confessions, but the Guilford Four wouldn't be released for another five years. Finally, on October 19th, 1989, 15 years after their arrest, Jerry Conlon walked out the front door of the prison, fist in the air, his two sisters clinging on to him. This photograph is the most memorable and so powerful from this whole story. He even said they wanted him to go out the back door of the prison because of all the press and all the media. But he said, I've been in prison for 15 years for something I didn't do. I'm going out the front door. Fuck yeah, you tell him, Jerry. Exactly. And this is a direct quote from him. I've been in prison for 15 years for something I didn't do. Something I didn't know anything about. I'm a totally innocent man. I watched my father die in a British prison for something he didn't do. He is innocent. The Maguires are innocent. Let's hope the Birmingham Six are next to be freed. Quick side note, the Birmingham Six were arrested under very similar situations to the Guilford Four. Mm -hmm. Basically the same story. He even said that when he was saying these words, it felt like it was his father's voice who was coming out of him uh, based on the promise that he made to him on his deathbed, which I just, I had to mention that because like it just like got me in the heart and just like punched my gut at the same time. So in 1989, the Guilford Four were acquitted and released. The Maguire's convictions, they weren't overturned until 1991. But they had already served their time, so it didn't even matter because they were already out of jail. And the group didn't get an apology until 2005, and it was a half-assed apology at best. Additionally, all the files on the case were said to be available after January 2020, but they have not been released. 
All Freedom of Information Act's requests have been denied. So the documents still aren't available. People keep trying to request to see these documents and they keep denying them for there's like five or six stipulations and things that why they might deny them. They just keep denying them. So there's still something that they're still hiding, obviously. I mean, you'd think that we would know enough by now, but I can't even imagine how many more shades of fuckery this has to go if they still will not show the files. And again, they just kind of let this all fade away. None of this is taught in schools. People can't even believe nowadays that the Irish were afraid of the British and vice versa. And during all this, I read an article that the Irish media didn't even report much on it because that would have exposed them and admitted to the IRA, which they didn't want to do. That was very damning. So they didn't even cover it all that much because they didn't want to give all that away. So in reparations, Jerry was only given 546,000 pounds, which sounds like a decent chunk of change, but for 15 years, it's not anything. He compared that to being given a bottle of whiskey and a revolver. He took drugs to cope. He tried to get sober. Eventually, he did beat it. Um, He had a very severe cocaine addiction and a drinking problem. He had a gambling addiction. He was very suicidal. He had a really hard time coping with the time that he spent there losing his father. You know, I mean, you're losing faith in everything those 15 years. I can't imagine. So, The rest of his life, Jerry campaigned for wrongfully convicted people until the day he died. He was actually friends with Johnny Depp, randomly, and um, Johnny Depp is actually the one who writes his forewords in biographies of him. Where are we now? Uh, Northern Ireland is still part of the UK. Ireland is not united still to this day. There has been a decline in violence And things are much better, but they are still not perfect, obviously, but it is much more stable now. And Paul Hill, the first to get arrested, said this about his friend Jerry. The simplest way is to think of everything one has achieved in the years between 20 and 35. A career, a home, a marriage, children. We had none of those. People have expressed the opinion that Jerry must have been an incredible man. No, he was not. He was an ordinary man who suffered an incredible injustice. And that is the story of the Guilford Four and the Maguire Seven. Jesus. Reminds me a lot of the Salem witch trials. Yeah. Like, yeah, it does. of course they're going to admit to something even if they didn't do it. You are literally torturing them. Yes. That and like uh, the Red Scare. And I think it was like the 1920s, 1930s in the think, U.S. Uh, yeah, I think like, the Red Scare of McCarthyism was the 1930s. Yeah, it was like right after Prohibition or like towards the end of Prohibition. Oh, man. I'm sorry that was a long one, but I had to give you the history for you to understand the story context a little bit better. I hope it didn't bore you too much with all of it, and I hope you were able to like keep up with everything. Yeah, I mean, I hate um, um, no, I feel like that's a political statement, and I'm not going to make that out yet. No, fucking make it. The The justice system is fucked. The justice system is not designed for reform. It is designed to oppress. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, I could go on forever. I could go on forever. Like, but we won't, mm. because it is late. 
Yes, it is late. I was so excited to tell you Thank that story. Thank you for apprising I you enjoyed me. it. Yes, Did I you did. enjoy it? Yes. Genuinely? Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening to My Existential Crisis. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Podcasts. You can find us wherever you get your content. If you (laughs) want to request a story much like Owen did, feel free to email us at myexistentialcrisispodcast at gmail.com or just send us a DM. (laughs) Slide into them. That works. Slide into those DMs, you know? Have a wonderful evening. Bye!